0: Well, it's a little difficult to believe, but today we come to the final message in the book of Acts. Now, I say it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe for me. It may be like for you, but uh, I have truly enjoyed preaching through this uh, book. Now, it's been a it's been a challenge, honestly. It's been a challenge. I mean, these are long chapters, difficult sometimes to. To get through it all and feel like you've done it any kind of justice, but uh, I, I'm, I've really enjoyed this, and today we kind of uh, kind of a pull it all together, hopefully, as we come to Acts chapter 28. And I want to ask you if you would to um, uh, join me in prayer before we begin this morning. Our father, we pause at this time to simply acknowledge our dependence upon you i know lord that i have personally have nothing of value to say only what comes from your word truly is is beneficial for for any of us especially your your people and lord i, I acknowledge that uh, it is your holy spirit that gives us understanding that uh, works in the hearts and minds of even those who hear and so we are truly completely dependent upon you and I ask that uh, you would enable me this morning to be able to present this truth in a way that would truly exalt you so that your people could, could see your greatness and, and glorify you and, and just you would be exalted in this time. I also pray that you would work in our hearts to draw us with, to, closer to you to have your heart for the world and for the lostness around us. And so we ask this, your blessing upon this this time now, in Jesus' name, amen. Giacomo Puccini was a great composer, and he was uh, one of those men that uh, has written an incredible number of operas, his opera's number among the world's most beloved. In um, 1922... Uh, he contracted cancer and he realized that he probably wasn't going to be around very long. And so he, purposed, he determined that he was going to write one more opera before he before he passed. And so he began to, to work on it. He, wor- he began to work on a, a, a an opera called Turandot. But his illness grew worse and his students began to urge him to Rest, you know, to save his energy and, and his and his strength. But but Puccini, he persisted. He kept working. And at one point, he says, "If I do not finish my music, my students will finish it." In 1924, Puccini was went to Brussels to be operated on, but two days after the surgery, he died. And uh, in uh, in uh, the course of things, his students indeed did finish turned out. And in 1926, the premiere was held in Milan under the baton of Puccini's favorite student, Arturo Toscanini. And all went brilliantly well until they came to the point in the opera where the master had been forced to lay down his pen and the students had been forced to take up writing the rest of this great work. And with tears, his face wet with tears, Toscanini turns to the audience and he says, Thus far the master wrote, but he died. He turns back away from the audience. He wipes his face and he turns back to the audience with a smile on his face, and he said, but his disciples finished his work. And so he picked up the baton, and they finished that great work. It went on to its uh, climax, its dramatic climax. Now, In many ways, that is a fitting story for the book of Acts, because, you see, according to Luke... In chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, the, 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 the book of Acts is a story of all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. And verse 8 tells us that the work that he began was completed then by his disciples, who were, he says, To be witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And so when we come to the end of Acts, Luke leaves us with the apostle Paul proclaiming the gospel in the capital city of Rome. And it says, with all openness and unhindered. So in one sense, the mission was completed the goal of getting the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the, the known earth at that time was was completed. But in another sense, the, the mission was not completed. It had really just begun. In another sense, you see, Luke says that the book of Acts is still being written. It's still carrying on. He leaves us with the story ongoing. And since then... His disciples have been carrying out that mission for over 2,000 years. That's you and I. We're all a part of that story. So the book of Acts is still being written. Jesus is still building his church, and, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now no, We've called this message, We Shall Prevail. We shall prevail. We've called this series, I mean, We Shall Prevail. And and listen, think about what we have studied so far in the book of Acts. We've learned that we shall prevail in spite of human limitations. Those disciples that Jesus had, they're just ordinary, uneducated fishermen and laborers. Ordinary people. And in spite of, of human limitations, God is still taking the gospel to the world through his people. We shall prevail despite language barriers. On that day of Pentecost, when all those people from all those places were gathered together, Peter stood up and he preaches, and everyone hears the gospel in his own language. God is still overcoming language barriers, even in the day in which we live. The gospel, we shall prevail. Even language can't keep us from proclaiming the gospel. Uh, severe persecutions. We shall prevail in, in constant persecution. They experience imprisonment, beatings, and all those kinds of things. And listen, is it any different today? Absolutely not. There is incredible, more persecution today than all the 20 centuries of the past combined. We're still facing persecution, but listen, we shall prevail. And we shall prevail despite government opposition. Did the government oppose the apostles? Yes. Does the government still do? Government still oppose the gospel today? All you got to do is look at China, and you see that it's true. But listen, even though they're raising churches, even though they are uh, imprisoning pastors and and literally killing many believers, we shall prevail. What about satanic attacks? In the Book of Acts, we see demons and magicians. And all kinds of, of opposition spiritually. What about personal disagreements? Paul and Barnabas had a personal disagreement. Did that stop the gospel from going out? No. What about geographical boundaries? All those kind of things. Those huge seas and, and, and mountains and all kinds of barriers. But they got crossed. And, and we took the gospel To all the world. What about discouragement? Was there discouragement? Absolutely. But what happened? God brought brought his people to his other people and encouraged them. What about natural calamities like storms and hurricanes and seas? Yes. And what about continual rejection? What did Paul experience with the Jews over and over and over? Continual rejection. What have we seen? We've seen that in spite of all these things, we shall prevail. And Acts 28 demonstrates once again how God accomplishes his mission. God accomplishes his great commission by empowering his servants who faithfully proclaim the gospel to all people. That is the theme of the book of Acts. That is the theme of our chapter today. And you see, in this chapter, we see three primary ways that God accomplishes his mission. First, God accomplishes his mission through his enabling grace. I love that word or that phrase, enabling grace. If you ask people, what does grace mean? They say, well, it means the unmerited favor of God, the unmerited goodness of God. Well, it is indeed that. But grace is also the Desire and the ability to do what God wants us to do. That's what, that's how Paul defines it in Philippians chapter 2. It's the desire and it's the ability to do what God asks us to do. Grace is by its very nature, it's not just unmerited, undeserved, but it is enabling. God is the one who gives us the ability. To do what we're supposed to do. He's the one who puts the, even puts the desire in our hearts to do it. And God's enabling grace is expressed in three primary ways here in Acts chapter 28. First, it's expressed in his protection. It's expressed in his protection from calamity. You just mark out the little D on your outline there and put calamity in there. You may remember that in Acts chapter 27, while Paul was sailing across the Mediterranean Sea, that on his way to Rome, along with 275 other men, that they encountered an enormous storm, a hurricane, as it were. And this storm lasted for two weeks. An incredible storm. And when, just when everything, all hope seemed lost, An angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, in verse 24, he says, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. And he says in verse 22, There will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. And he says in verse 26, But we must run aground on a certain island. Listen, that is exactly what happened. And God enabled these men to escape the calamity of a shipwreck. Paul was also protected by the centurion named Julius because, you see, all the other soldiers wanted to kill the the prisoners to keep them from escaping and protect them. But Julius protected them. God used Julius to protect Paul even in the midst of, of that possible calamity. And so when when we come to Acts chapter 28, and verse 1, we read this. When they had been brought safely through. Now friends, who did that? Who brought them safely through? God brought them safely through. And they said, we found that we were on the island of Malta. God brought them safely through because God had a, a purpose, a mission for Paul to accomplish. And Paul and his fellow shipmates discovered that they were on this little island of Malta. It's about 18 miles long. It's about 8 miles wide. It's located about 60 miles south of Sicily. And If you look on the map there, you see that in spite of this, this, this hurricane they were in for two weeks, Paul is still right on target, right on course where God wants him to be. God sovereignly oversees all of this. But he not only protects them from, from calamity, he protects them from cruelty. Look at verse 2. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. So notice, they showed us extraordinary kindness and they received us all. And, and look at that word, see, natives what comes to your mind when you think about natives you know you're probably picturing something you know a group of people over in africa somewhere with uh, uh, grass skirts and and uh, beads around their neck and and spears well this is not what he's talking about here this is the this is the word from which we get our our, our english word barbarian the greeks referred to anyone who didn't speak the greek le- as a Greek language, as barbarians, because it sounded to them like, when they were speaking a, a foreign language, that they were just a kind of an intelligible jumble of syllables. It sounded to them like bar, 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 bar. And so they called them re- literally barbarians. It's the barbaros Barbarous. And see, they thought that anybody that didn't speak the language was uncultured, uh, was was cruel, was uh, uh, uneducated, and that's the way they looked at them, uncivilized. And many times that actually tr- proved to be true, because see in that day when when people would shipwreck, it was extremely dangerous because the people on the on the shores where these people would wash ashore when they would come up, they would be exhausted from fighting the sea and and from swimming ashore. They would be exhausted, and oftentimes they would just slaughter them. Or they would tie them up, enslave them, and sell them. And they would, what they would do is they would collect all the cargo that would wash in, and that became theirs. So slavery and taking of cargo was a common occurrence. It was almost expected. But notice in this case, the natives showed them extraordinary kindness. How did that happen? By God's grace, right? And God not only protects them from uh, calamity and from cruelty, he protects them from exposure. Also in verse 2, it was, it was cold and it was rainy and the men were wet from swimming ashore and the natives kindled a fire and, and welcomed them and, and found porters for them even for the winter. This is an amazing thing that was happening here. He also protected them from harm. Look at verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But They were expecting that he was about to swell up and suddenly fall down dead. But after all, but after they had waited a long time, had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now Paul was out just collecting sticks for the fire. It's cold. It's raining. Snakes are cold-blooded. This snake is not moving. It's, you know, he's just very sluggish, and he's laying there among the sticks. And Paul, guy, has very poor eyesight; he can't see well at all. He's picking up sticks, and he just when he grabs it, he grabs a snake with it, a viper. He didn't even know this until he gets it into the fire. When he puts that thing near the fire, all of a sudden the snake is it gets some heat, and he wakes up and whoom! Right on top of his, and grabs him by the hand. He's hanging from him, from his hand, so he's getting a good dose of venom. And then they're all thinking, oh man, this guy—he got saved from the sea, but justice—you know—you know how people think. But karma is coming around. You know, he's going to get what he deserves. That's the way people think. You know, but Paul shakes the snake off into the fire, and there's no harm. but they're waiting. Well, you know how it is when you get a snake. But it takes a few minutes, you know, for that venom to really take hold. And they're just waiting for him to swell up, fall over dead. They've seen this before. But then he doesn't. Man, this guy, nothing hurts him. He must be a God. Wow. And you see, um, Luke tells us this story to show us that God miraculously protected Paul because he had a purpose. For him to go to Rome and stand before Caesar and to proclaim the gospel to those Gentile people. And and remember that God made this promise to Paul back in chapter 23 and verse 11. And that verse is governing all that is happening here. God is going to fulfill his promise perfectly. And so Paul has protected because this is God's plan for him. Nothing. Nothing. Not a shipwreck, not soldiers, not slavery, not exposure, not a a serpent. Nothing is going to keep God from fulfilling his mission through the Apostle Paul. And then after the winter, the shipwrecked men set sail for Rome on another ship. And it says in verse 11, At the end of three months we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. Now I think that Luke includes this detail here. It seems like an almost unnecessary detail in all of this, but he includes it here because it reinforces the reality of God's protection. You see, the ship had this this twin masthead, the brothers, you see who's that uh that is that's uh, castor and pollux the uh mythical sons of the god zeus and according to the the legend zeus t- takes his sons and he sets them places them in the sky and they become the the what we know as the constellation of gemini and so when the soldiers were, or the sailors would look up at the sky and they saw Gemini, they saw that as a good sign that there were no, uh, there were no, no storms coming, that it was good weather. They looked at it as a, a kind of a good luck charm. And so they put them on their, the, on their, uh, the bow of their ship or the front of their ship, and it was a, a idea, you know, hey, we're protected by this, by this, these gods, as it were. But Luke mentions this detail in contrast to this pagan superstition with the true protection that God gives to his believers. You see, the reason there's safe voyage from Malta to Rome was not because of the mythical twin brothers, but rather because of the protection of the living God. God is the one who protects us in all things. But then we see that God's enabling grace is... Revealed to us through his provision. Through his provision, first of all, of physical needs. And verse 1 tells us that that the servants, these uh, natives, they showed extraordinary hospitality to them. Then in verse 7, Publius, the leading man of the island, he says he entertained all 276 men for three days. And apparently he found lodging for them for the winter. Then in verse 10, it tells us that, that when they departed, that these islanders gave, gave, honored them with many gifts, and, it, and they supplied them with everything that they needed. God is providing everything that is needed. So Paul and his companions are on their way. But not only does God supply The all that they need in terms of physical things, God gives supplies the needs in terms of emotional needs. Look at verse 12. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regum. And a day later, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petoli. If you look at the map there, you can see that uh, this is where they began. Malta is at the very bottom. They go to Syracuse, reg them through the Straits there of Masana, and they go on up to Patoli, which is about 140 miles from Rome. And the centurion then does something else. Um, verse 14, Then we found some brethren. And we're invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. When they get there, there there's some believers. This is brother. These are believers. These are Christians that are already in Rome or in Italy. Isn't that amazing? And, and he gets a week with them. The centurion allows him to spend a week with these Brothers, and it says in verse 15, and the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Apius and three ends to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Again, if you look at the map, you can see that that's kind of right up here at the top. You see uh, three taverns and the Forum of Apius. Wow. When Paul saw all these brothers who have heard about him. You know what? He took courage. That means Paul was encouraged. Aren't you grateful for the people of God that God brings into your life to give you encouragement in times of difficulty? I mean, what do we do? What do, you, how, do you, how do you make it without God, without God's people? I don't know how people go through all the things they go through without the support and the encouragement of God's people. You see, God is God knows what we need. He supplies it at the right time. That's one of the. I think that's one of the most um, greatest recommendations for being a part of a of a small group, of a of Bible fellowship class, a, a small group somehow to have a relationship, to have some kind of interaction and close relationship with other believers, friends. It's a it's a tremendous benefit that God gives to us is that relationship I would encourage it if you're not a part of that man find some place to get plugged in it's a great place to be and uh, Paul's being treated almost like a you know a dignitary like someone famous here these people are just uh, oohing over him it's been a great encouragement to him but God not only provides that he, he provides for our financial need In verse 16 and verse 30, it tells us that Paul was allowed to stay by himself, and he was allowed to stay in his own rented quarters. Now think about this. Paul has been traveling. He's been in prison in Jerusalem. He's been traveling across the sea. He's here now almost to Rome. He comes to Rome. Where in the world does Paul get resources to be able to stay to have pay rent? Well, probably from all these brothers that have come to encourage him. And we also know in the book of Philippians that the Philippian church, on numerous occasions, sent very generous love offerings to Paul to support him and encourage him. God always has a way of supplying exactly what we need and when we need it. How would you like to have been a person who was paying for Paul to stay? In uh, his own quarters, you know what Paul did in his own quarters? He wrote a huge portion of the of the of what we know as the New Testament. how'd you like to have been a sponsor of the New Testament? <laughs> Pretty cool, huh yeah so and you know paul 's case is not unique if you read about uh, Missioners, you read their biographies. You will find in story after story after story that God meets the needs of his people. He meets their financial needs, He meets their physical needs, He meets their emotional needs. God has ways of doing it it 's incredible and and then God reveals his power. His grace reveals his power. verse eight, and it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery, and Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. And after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. Now, all the... Luke is the physician. God is using Paul here to miraculously heal many of these people. And the first one that he heals is the father of Publius, who's the who's the leading man on the on the island there. He's sick with fever and dysentery. He may have had Malta fever, which uh, could last from 4 months to several years. And in 1887 it was discovered that uh, Malta fever is caused by a bacterium in the milk of these Maltese goats. Of course, now we have a you know uh uh, things antibiotics that can take care of that kind of thing but then it was extremely serious and this man was at the possibly at the point of death and after many others after he prayed for him and he was healed well then many other people began to come and paul is 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 healing these people and guess what happens when paul heals people you know what happens when jesus healed people what did he do he preached and when he preached, people would come to faith. And Paul would do this because this was the purpose of his healing. Well, it was not only to meet the needs of the people there, but to open the door for the gospel. Now, now Luke doesn't tell us about the preaching. He doesn't even tell us about the converts. But we know that Paul never missed an opportunity to preach about the Lord, because that's all he did. That was his life. And so he's preaching, and he's talking about Jesus, and it's an incredible thing that is happening here on this island. There's a, a church that was established. Now, missionary Bruce Olson left his Minnesota home at the age of 19. He had no support, and he had no contacts, but he felt like that God was calling him to reach the murderous Matoni Indian tribe in South America. And he, and, he, and he goes there, a place where no white man had ever survived. Every person who had gone there had been killed to this point. When he goes, sure enough, he is shot full of arrows. No one really knows how he survived in the jungle after being shot so many times and having no medication. But he pulled all the arrows out of himself. He survived in the jungle and he went back to the village. And when he walked into the village, they thought, kind of like the people on the island, he must be a god. But he wasn't a god, but he knew God. And he begins to tell them about the, he begins to learn the language, and eventually he's been telling them about Jesus. Well, one, at one point, he's deep in the jungle with these natives, and they ask him, they said, How do we get pretty eyes like you have? He didn't know what they meant, but then he realized that he was suffering from malaria. His eyes had turned yellow along with his skin. And he became uh, debilitated. He couldn't hardly move. And he was lying in a hut, suffering, thinking that he's po- this is possibly the end for him. And suddenly he hears the native stirring outside of ruckus, and then he hears the very rare sound of a helicopter overhead, and he asks the these these Indians to to carry him outside into a clearing. They carry him out, and there are two men on a joy ride in a in an in a oil company helicopter just driving ride flying out over the matoni uh, Indian area to see what they can see. And when they look down in the clearing and they see this blond head among the, the, the natives there, they land. Well, it turns out that one of the men was a doctor, a doctor that Bruce Olson had known from years before. They loaded him up in the helicopter and they flew him to a hospital where the doctors told him that he had just arrived and barely in time, that he only had a few hours to live if he hadn't made it. Then they also told him that his liver was so damaged that he would never be able to go back into the jungle, that he's going to have have extensive treatment for six months or more. But after three weeks, he got up out of the bed, and a week later, he walked back into the jungle. And three days later, he began to have fever again. He began to have crushing chest pain, his urine turned dark, and he began to to suffer the many of the symptoms. And he was he lay down that night feeling terrible. And he prayed. He said, Oh God, you have brought me here to work with the, the Matoni. Please, God, heal my body. The next morning he woke up feeling fine. No more pain. His urine was clear. And he went back to the Matoni where he's Saw God do many more incredible miracles. But he says the greatest miracle that he saw was the changed lives of the Matoni. This tribe that had been a warring tribe, had been so violent, now had become the peacemaking tribe among all the tribes there in that area of South America. And they were the proclaimers of the gospel, the greatest proclaimers. His story is a modern-day example of how God accomplishes His great commission by protecting and providing and empowering His people. Secondly, God accomplishes His purpose, His mission, through His expounded gospel. Look with me. This is fascinating. Verse 17. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, I thought I had done, I, I, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because I had, they had, there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything about about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken of against everywhere. So when Paul gets to Rome, first thing he does, he summons all the the Jewish leaders, and he explains to them why he's there as a prisoner. He's telling them, I don't have a problem with my nation, but I've been, you know, pursued and attacked by the Jewish people. Now, it's a little strange that they didn't know anything about Paul. All they really knew was that Christianity was spoken of in a very negative way by all the Jews. And they said, well, we're open. We want to hear what you got to say. Wow, isn't that great? When when somebody says, yeah, tell me the gospel. Yeah, so here Paul has this opportunity. Verse 23, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. From both the law of Moses and from the prophets. From morning until evening. Now let's, let's stop here and look at those, those words. See the words in yellow? Those are the words that, that's, that was, it tells us what Paul was doing. He was explaining. He was testifying. You know what testifying is? Remember he, Paul gave his personal testimony? How he had had an encounter with Jesus. That he personally knew him and what God had done in his life. He's explaining to them, he's testifying about the kingdom of God, and he's trying to persuade them. In other words, he's not just telling them, he's saying, listen, we want some action from you, we want a response from you. This is an invitation. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about God's big plan, seeing, seeing this from God's big perspective, the world. And what else is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, who's the answer, who is the fulfillment of all that God has planned for the kingdom of God. What's his text? What's his authority? Well, the authority is the law of Moses and the prophets. In other words, it's the Old Testament. It's the scriptures. What's Paul doing? He's expounding the word of God. Now, if you look up the word expound in the dictionary, it means, it means that, you do, that you do it systematically. Let's see if I've got this. The dictionary says to present and explain a theory or idea systematically and in detail. Now, that's exactly what Paul was doing. He probably took them to the text of Moses. You remember back there in the the law of Moses? And he took them back to all of those sacrifices, and he explained to them how Jesus was the fulfillment of all those sacrifices the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He took him and shows them how all Jesus was the fulfillment of all the festivals and all the feasts and all the symbolism of the law of Moses. He probably took them to Psalm 16, which Paul and Peter both used as proof of the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection. And no doubt he took them to Psalm 22 and showed them a picture of the crucifixion that was presented to them, to the Jewish people, many years, hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented. And he probably took them to Isaiah 53, which describes the death of Jesus in detail. He did this from morning until evening. He's got a whole day to expound, to systematically put together how the Old Testament is a fulfillment of Jesus, is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, of the law. Now, what's the outcome? Well, look at the next verse. Some were being persuaded of the thing spoken, but others would not believe. And you know what? That's the way it always is. Every single time the Bible is preached, there are people who believe and receive, and there are people who do not believe and reject. That's happening right here at this very moment, in this morning. There are people who receive it and believe. There are people who are rejecting it. They're hearing it, but rejecting it. And you see, Verse 25 tells us this, that or excuse, I'll go ahead and, and when, they had, when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles they will also listen. So give the picture here. Before they leave, Paul has one parting word for these Jewish people. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 6. You remember Isaiah chapter 6? That's where Isaiah goes into the temple and he sees the Lord sitting on his throne, high and exalted and in his glory. And in that God calls Isaiah to preach to the Jewish people. But then he tells them, listen, you're going to go to them, and they're going to hear, but they're not going to hear. They're going to see what you're saying, but they're not going to see. They're not going to believe. They're going to resist. He's telling them up front what's going to happen. And this is an important Passage. This is an important verse because it's quoted at least six times in the New Testament to talk, to describe what the Jews are going to do in response to the gospel. Three of those times are in reference to Jesus speaking of par- in parables. And, and you remember the disciples were asking Jesus, why are you speaking in parables? And he says, I'm speaking in parables to conceal the truth from scripture scoffers from people who've hardened their hearts and he says i am speaking the i am speaking uh, the truth in parables to reveal that truth to seekers so it depends upon what your heart is when you come to the word are you a are you a, a seeker or are you a scoffer if you're a scoffer you hear but you don't get it if you're a seeker you hear, and man, it's beautiful. You get it. You, you love it. And 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 think about this. Paul has laid it out for them like no other person in, in Jewish history. The man who'd been trained by the most notable rabbi of his day, the man who knew practically knew the Old Testament by heart. And A man who had had an encounter with the living Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, had been taught by him for three years in the, in, the, in, the, in the Arabian desert, he lays it out for them beginning in the Old Testament. He lays it out for them. He expounds it in absolute detail. Nobody could possibly not get it. Except for someone who doesn't want to get it. And he says, listen, if you harden your heart, then God is going to give you what you want. He's going to further harden your heart. And and you know, I've had people tell me so many times, I couldn't couldn't count the times, I can't see how anybody could sit through that message that wasn't saved and not get saved. You know why? Because they don't want to get it. It's not an intellectual matter. It's a, it's a heart matter. And his, Israel has this history of rejecting God, and they finally rejected his own son and murdered him. And here God comes to them again and speaks to them the truth in, in grace. And what do they do? They turn away. And God says, okay, that's the way it'll be. So, Paul says, All right, you may be rejecting the truth, but I am going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. They will also listen. God's purpose is to be glorified through the expounding of the gospel to all people. I love preaching. I love preaching because it is the way, because what I'm doing is sitting up here, I'm simply telling you who God is and what He's done. That's the greatest way to glorify God. All you gotta do is tell people who God is and what He's done, and you're glorifying God. And He accomplishes His purpose through servants who are willing to glorify Him. Do you get that? Anybody's willing to glorify him, God will accomplish his purpose through you. Hardness of heart prevents us from responding in faith to the gospel. But it never thwarts God's ultimate purpose. I could tell you this. There's coming a time when Israel is going to respond. When they are going to hear the gospel and they are going to turn to God in faith. That's that time is coming. But right now, we're in the time we're in the time until the gentiles, the time of the gentiles is fulfilled. Right now we, you and I, we are our job is to proclaim the gospel, to expound the gospel to the world and let God bring in all that he would. And third, finally, God accomplishes his mission through his evangelistic generations. If you look at verse 30, it says, And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Now, what do you call preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus? What would you call that? That's evangelism. When you talk about God and Jesus, that's, that's evangelism. And even though Paul is a prisoner, notice, he's still an evangelist. He's in prison, but he's still telling everybody about Jesus. And he does this, it says, with all openness. Openness means he's doing it boldly. He's doing it straightforward. He's doing it bluntly. He's not tickling any ears. He's not telling any mushy stories. He's simply telling them who God is and what he's done. I think we ought to learn a lesson from that. If you want to know, put people to know the gospel, you know the best thing to do? Tell it to them. Tell it to them. Friend, it's not your responsibility what, to how they respond. Your responsibility is to make sure you get the real gospel out. God's Holy Spirit is the one who takes care of the rest. Our job is simply to tell them. And, and Luke's final word in the Greek text, is the word unhindered it's also the last word in the new american standard unhindered and that's a good translation of that greek word because that's what it means it means the gospel can't be contained it means the gospel can't be suppressed fully it means it's unstoppable do you get this the gospel is unstoppable and it means that as we practice evangelism we shall prevail now listen, there are always going to be groups of people among whom the gospel is not received. Case in point, most of the Jews in Rome. But there are also groups of people that will receive the gospel. Case in point, the Gentiles in Rome. And, and, and though Paul is in chains, the gospel's not in chains. Though Paul's in prison, the gospel is not in, in prison. And for that reason, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10 that he endured all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Paul says, listen, I've gone through all these things. All the things that we've read about and studied about in the book, of I've gone through all of those for one purpose. So that people... And hear the gospel and can be saved. I've endured all that. Has it been easy? No. Is taking the gospel to the world an easy task? No. He is not. But is it a necessary task? Absolutely it is. You know, Luke never tells us the outcome of Paul's trial. He never tells us anything about his subsequent life. So you say, what happened after the book of Acts? Well, let me tell you. Probably, Paul stayed for two years in Rome as a prisoner. He's waiting on the Jews to come from Judea and accuse him to stand trial. He's there for two years. What does he do while he's there? He writes... Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He writes all these great books of the New Testament while he's there in prison. These are called prison epistles. And when his accusers don't show, after two years, finally he's released. Paul gets out of prison. And some think that he eventually made his way to Spain as he talked about at the end of the book of Romans. And we don't know if that's true or not, but some think he did. He probably visited many of the churches that he had planted. He goes back to these churches. We know for sure that he goes back to Ephesus. And when he's there, he sees there's some issues and he sends Timothy there to deal with some of the issues that are, are there. And and then he he goes to crete and he leaves and he left titus there to minister with those people and to deal with some issues that they had and you now think very carefully here here's timothy here's titus this is the next generation of evangelists these are the men that he tells What are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to invest your life in people who will understand the truth and that they will share it with other people and they will invest in other people. That's called discipleship. And so that's what he tells them to do. That's what he's doing. He's setting up generation after generation after generation of evangelists with the gospel. In other words, he's going right back to the very first of the book where he says, you shall be my witnesses in all the world. He's doing exactly what the whole book was set up to to show us with them, even now at the end. And then, during the the free years, Paul writes 1 Timothy and Titus. Now, he's got to write some letters to them because they've got some issues when they're trying to deal with their churches. Perhaps then, at some point, he was betrayed. Maybe someone like Alexander the coppersmith. And Paul is re-arrested, and he's taken to Rome. Only this time, he's not going to stay in his own quarters that are rented. He's thrown into the Maritime prison in Rome, which you can still visit today. still there. This is, this is not a place anybody wants to be. It is a dark, dank dungeon underground. And he, when he writes from there, Second Timothy, it reflects the conditions that Paul said there. He's, he says, I'm, I'm just about done. I've run this race and man, it's been tough, and I, I am just about to cross the finish line. And sure enough, about 67 or 68 AD, one fall morning, the Apostle Paul is led out into a courtyard. A sword flashes in the sun. Paul's forced to kneel, put his head on a block, and his head is removed. And Paul spends then eternity in heaven with his Lord that he has served so faithfully. God accomplishes his mission through his faithful servants who take the gospel to the world. And each of us that needs to ask, what about me? Am I as committed to the great commission of my Lord as I ought to be? Since God has protected and provided me, and I'm relying on His power to do what He asked me to do, am I willing to really make the sacrifice like Paul was to, to make the gospel known in the world? You say, Pastor, what what, what can I do? What What can I do? I, I don't know what to do. Let me just... I'm not going to comment on these. I just want to put these up here and let you think about these for a few minutes. First of all, ask God to burden your heart for the lost. Isn't it so easy to look at our world in a, in a negative and condemning way? I mean, when you when you see the guy, the way the people drive on the freeway, when you come to the stop sign and people are running stop stop lights and stop signs, when you go to work and people are are just being nasty and mean and selfish and your neighborhood and everywhere you turn just we just see all these ugly things going on isn't it just want us to, to look and we listen to the politics and we listen to all isn't it just so easy to just want to look condemn it all it is, I mean literally isn't it isn't it just in our hearts sometimes just to say to hell with them all I mean it's really what it amounts to Maybe we need a different perspective on people. Maybe we need to see those people as people who are who are enslaved in their sin, who are hurting, who are, who are doing the things that they do out of their and selfishness, out of their own blindness and and, and slavery. They don't know how else to live. That's, that's what lost people do. What they need is freedom. They need, how do you free them? And when you even go to free them, it's like trying to free a dog to, or an a, wild animal that's been caught in something. When you try to help them, they going to bite your hand off. But you know what? You know, you know that you can help them. And you got what they need. And you give it to them. We need a heart for lost people. And I'll tell you, one of the things I think we ought to do is we ought to learn and practice presenting the gospel, whether it's three circles or faith or whatever it is. We ought to do. We need to not only learn it because we, we've learned it, but what happens is we forget it. We don't use it. We don't practice it, and we don't. We can't use it because we are, we're not in practice. We're, that's not our mindset. And I think we ought to be practicing it, keeping up on it, and be ready. Read missionary biographies. You know, when we do Good News Club, almost every time, the kids' favorite part of Good News Club is at the end when we do the mission story. They love to hear stories about Bruce Olson and and many other people. About Hudson Taylor and uh, all the great missionaries uh, John Payton, uh, Judson, uh, Jim Elliott, William Carey, all these great missionaries, man. They're incredible stories. Pray for world missions and pray for persecuted Christians. Man, persecuted Christians have some of the greatest opportunities for the gospel of anybody in the world. We may think it's the most horrible thing that's ever happened, and I would hate to be there myself. I admit it. But I'll tell you, I believe that God is using the persecution of believers in a way that we cannot even comprehend. I believe that people are getting saved in a greater way through the persecution of believers that we we just don't get it. Pray for them. Give sacrificially to world missions. We're coming up on Christmas. We'll be taking a uh, an Annie, our, uh, Lottie Boone Christmas offering, man. 100% of that goes to we put missionaries on the field. We're, we're, the, we're the Philippian church that's providing for those missionaries on the field. We want to do that. And listen, as God directs, go on a mission trip. Lord willing, we're going to have some coming up next year, and I hope you'll consider doing that. A familiar legend tells of a conversation between Jesus and the archangel Gabriel after Jesus has ascended back into heaven. He's gone to the cross, he's, he's risen, and he's gone back into heaven. And the angel Gabriel is saying, Wow, tell me about all the things that happened. And Jesus is telling him. And then he says, Well, uh, what is your plan for, for, for people to learn about what you've done for them? And he said, well, I've got these disciples, and I have given them a commission, a great commission, to go into all the world and tell everybody about what I've done. And Gabriel says, but what if they don't do that? And Jesus says, I don't have any other plan. You are God's plan for the world to hear the gospel. You, every believer, you are God's plan to accomplish his mission. And if you're willing, you know what? You will experience his enabling grace. He'll protect you. He'll provide for you. Uh, he, he will He will give you the power that you need. He will give you the ability to expound the gospel and he will make you an evangelistic generation you're his plan, Father.